0: Christmas. We've been in a series of sermons called Christmas BC. It's kind of an odd title, I know. Christmas BC. What does that mean? Is that Christmas before COVID? What? No. Uh, Christmas before Christ. Okay, well, that's kind of strange. What is that all about? Well, we've been looking at passages in the Bible uh, in what's called the Old Testament, written long before the time of Jesus, that foreshadow and explain and give context to the coming of Jesus, you might think of these passages as like a letter or a Christmas card uh, that accompanies a gift. you know like if you, you get some Christmas gifts that need a little explaining to see the value of it or to understand the heart behind the gift. so show and tell time up here with me. I have uh, a piece of wood that I got as a Christmas gift one time, which on the surface you know okay that's. Uh, a piece of wood. But uh, it's, from, it's from my grandmother and there is a note on it. And on the note, she wrote some, some scriptures on there, a short note to me, and that this piece of wood is from the farm where she grew up. It was on her father's properties, my great-grandfather's land. And there's old barns there, you know, now that are being torn down. But as they were tearing them down, they reclaimed some of the wood. And she and my grandfather um, cut these pieces of wood for their grandkids and sanded them down and wrote notes to all of us. And so now, you know, this is one of my favorite gifts. It sits on the top of my chest of drawers and I look at it and see some of these scriptures that she wrote um, each morning. Next I have uh, this little shopping cart, uh, which is uh, a lot of fun. So uh, this cart is from, so Ashley and I were um, high school sweethearts, just barely. Like right at the end of high school, I was able to lock it down and get her to agree to date me. And um, one of our one of our, first um, hangouts, like maybe kind of flirtatious hangouts, like, okay, I like you, you like me, was in the Chili's slash Toys R Us parking lot uh, in Savannah, Georgia. And we thought it'd be fun uh, for her to sit in the buggy and for me to cruise around the parking lot and chat. And so her first Christmas gift to me was... Um, This buggy so you'd have to have like a note or some pictures to understand the importance of the gift don't worry you'll never see the pictures but um, this is the the gift and then the last one I have is from uh, it's, it's a bible that my parents gave to me when I was 12 so right before becoming a teenager they gave me this bible and in the cover just a short note that said may this bible help you become the man that God desires for you to be we love you mom and dad. And the note makes it mean all the more. And so as we look at some of these Old Testament passages that foretell and explain the coming of Christ, you can think of these as a, a letter that helps you understand the gift and just as importantly, helps you understand the heart of the one who is giving us this gift. During the Christmas season, many of us get that Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world to save us. And we celebrate that and we appreciate it. But I wonder if along the way, do we stop and ponder the heart of God behind this precious gift? So it's not just that he came, but why would he even choose to come? What is in his heart toward us? If we don't understand that, if we don't perceive God's heart, then our celebration of Christmas and way more importantly, our worship of God will be diminished. So when our church started teaching through the book of Daniel earlier this year, um, I started studying the book of Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah was a prophet to the last two remaining tribes in the nation of Israel, which were Judah and Benjamin. So, Jeremiah spoke to the people on behalf of God and to the leaders of Jerusalem, both before and during their fall to Babylon and their subsequent exile. Which, if you remember, that's what the book of Daniel was all about. So, the book of Jeremiah, it's like a prequel to the book of Daniel, and I wanted to reread the prequel before we studied Daniel together. Uh, So that's where we're going to be. If you have a Bible, we're going to be looking at some chapters in Jeremiah, starting in verse 30. But the book of Jeremiah, man, it is a doozy, okay? Like, it is really sad for the most part. There's 52 chapters, and the large majority of these chapters contain words of judgment against the nation of Israel for their unfaithfulness to God, whom they were in covenant relationship with. And so for the first part of the book of Jeremiah, God is just calling them out for their sexual immorality, for predatory adultery, for their neglect of the poor and the needy, theft, murder, lying, idolatry, even child sacrifice, refusing to listen to God's many attempts to correct them, and then worst of all, they just presumed upon His mercy um, through, through all of it and his leniency. And so, Jeremiah, one chapter after another, is just because you've refused to listen to my voice, I am going to give you into the hands of your enemies, and it is not going to be good. It's not a fun book to read. But, right in the center of the book, and likely just as the Babylonian armies are approaching Jerusalem, Building their siege works, uh, building ramps into the city, breaking the walls, battering the gates—in the worst and most terrifying moments of their lives—Jeremiah receives a message of hope and comfort, and it's contained in Jeremiah chapters thirty to thirty-three. Scholars call this section of the book the Book of Comfort or the Book of Consolation, and so we're gonna we're gonna skim over some of these chapters. But in these chapters. God reveals His innermost heart for His people and His ultimate response to their sin and their suffering. The book of comfort is the note card attached to the gift of Christ. And as such, these chapters reveal to us God's heart for us in our sin and our suffering. So I don't have like a snappy or memorable outline to give you for this section, but I just want to read a few portions of Jeremiah 30 to 33. It's worth reading the whole chapters on your own, maybe later this afternoon or something, but I want to just at least read a bit and let you hear for yourself God's heart, his Christmas letter given hundreds of years before the gift of Christ arrives, his heart for his children when they go astray or when they are afflicted. Jeremiah chapter 30. I'm going to start in verse 12. For thus says the Lord, Your hurt is incurable, and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you, they care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. I have done these things to you. At this point, you're like, I thought you said there was good stuff in this chapter. There is. It's coming. Just hold on. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured. And all your foes, every one of them shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered. And all who prey on you, I will make a prey. And now the background music changes from the minor key to the major key. He says, for I will restore health to you. And your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord. Because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. Thus says the Lord. Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound, and the palace shall stand where it used to be. And out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. And I will multiply them. They shall not be few. I will make them honored, and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all who oppress them. And then in verse 21, we get a brief uh, prediction, of which there will be more, about a prince or a king or a ruler that will come for Israel. Their prince shall be one of themselves. He'll be an Israelite, in other words, not from uh, another country like Nebuchadnezzar. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. So this king will be able to draw near to God, which was the language used of the Levitical priest in the Old Testament. Kings couldn't do that, but this king will. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. The next chapter, chapter 31, just a few verses from here. Uh, Starting in verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And we're going to come back to this verse later, but just to explain it while we're here. Uh, Ramah, it was a city about five miles north of Jerusalem that was used as a holding site for defeated Israelite prisoners as they were prepared to be deported, uh, shipped off to Babylon. Babylon. And Rachel, who's now the long-since-deceased matriarch of Israel, she's personified as seeing all this happen and weeping. She represents the mothers of Israel who are weeping for their children as they're being rounded up, caged, taken to a foreign land. But, wait, God goes on to say, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Is Ephraim, or Israel, my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, which he has now for 29 chapters, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him declares the Lord. More literally, my gut goes out to him. God's compassion and love for his people is visceral. It's deeply seated. Um, Dane Ortland has a wonderful book called Gentle and Lowly that has a chapter in it called Yearning Bowels about this passage. And that's how the older translations render this. My heart yearns. More literally, it is in my gut I have compassion on him and that chapter alone in Dane Ortland's book is worth the price of the book and his work has been helpful for me as I've looked at these passages and we'll come around back to Dane Ortland in just a bit but then the book of comfort closes like this in chapter 33 and I'm getting around to Christmas in just a little while I promise but chapter 33 verse 14 behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will fulfill the promise that I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah in those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, grain offerings, to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea, cannot be measured. So I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. Okay, so what to do with all this? What is God's ultimate response to his people in their sin and in their sorrow, in their unfaithfulness and in their sickness? What is his heart toward us? It is not what you might expect, especially after the first 29 chapters of the book, and it's certainly not what any of us would do if we were in God's position, but his heart is to move toward us, to move in with us, to fulfill his promise, to send a righteous branch, a king who will save us and fight for us and stand before God on our behalf, What is God's ultimate response to our sin and our sorrow? It is Christ. Let's talk about our sin first. So in Jeremiah's book of comfort, God's ultimate response to the sin of his people in chapter 30 is that he would restore them. He would heal their incurable heart wound. He would show them compassion. He would give them songs of joy again. Chapter 31, he would forgive their sins. He would give them a new heart that longs to love and obey God. And he would show them mercy. So yes, of course, God is grieved and rightly offended by our sin. And he will certainly punish those who callously persist in it, as you might expect a morally righteous God to do. But what is his heart's response to our sin? Is his finger always on the trigger? If it's a trigger loaded with mercy, then yes. Dane Ortland writes, his anger requires provocation, but his mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think that divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded, and that divine mercy is a slow build. It's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. How do you picture God when you fail Him? Spring-loaded with wrath or spring-loaded with mercy? Ready to burst at the slightest prick. Of course, our sins are serious. God takes them seriously. But rather than move away from us, He moves towards us. He moves heaven and earth, or more accurately, He would move heaven to earth in order to rescue us from it. Uh, The Puritan minister, Thomas Goodwin, and Puritans, man, they, they were like pretty serious about sin, right? If you've ever read much of the Puritans, but Puritan minister, Thomas Goodwin, wrote this. He said, Your very sins move him to pity more than anger. Yes, his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease. His hatred shall all fall, and that only upon the sin to free you of it by its ruin and destruction. But his bowels, there's the old word again, but his heart shall be the more drawn out to you. And this is much when you lie under sin as any other affliction. Therefore, fear not. What shall separate us from Christ's love? If through faith in Christ you are God's child, then this is God's heart for you. And if you're not a Christian and you're here today or listening, um, I hope this helps you understand the heart of our God a little better. And you might wonder, what's, what's the heart of God towards me? You know, if I'm not a Christian or if I'm not sure about that. Well, Christmas should tell you what you need to know about God's heart. Christmas means that God is not some far-off, unknowable, distant deity, but that He has come close to you. That uh, He's willing to do anything and everything necessary to reconcile you to Himself so that you might not have to sit under the judgment of God. And all that wonderful kindness is meant to lead you to a changed life, a new life where God's love and His his ways are written on your heart. He longs to be gracious to you. And so today, the ball is in your court. The invitation has been extended Perhaps you're someone that questions a lot of things about God, but I hope today you see His heart. Now, what about our sorrow? How does Christmas speak to our sorrows? Perhaps for many of you, this is not the most wonderful time of the year. For whatever could be a number of reasons, maybe you know that you're going to have to spend yet another Christmas alone. Or maybe the brokenness of your family is always front and center at family gatherings and so you just dread it. Or maybe you're suffering from sickness and all of the complications that that brings to our gatherings this year. Or maybe you're just so stinking busy and stressed out by this time of year that you're almost annoyed at anyone who's happy with it. (laughs) And then of course there's always grief grief that sits on the bottom of our hearts that the holidays dredge up because we miss the people that we shared these days with. We long to be with them. But in any case, perhaps for a lot of us, this is not the most wonderful time of the year. But you see, Christmas is probably way more about Jesus meeting us in our mourning than in our celebrating. Jesus Comes into our grief. He comes onto the stage of the world in its grief rather than mirth. All these prophecies of a new king coming are given at Israel's darkest hour. And if you were paying attention to the reading earlier, and if you know your Bible, you saw a verse that gets picked up in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, when he tells the Christmas story. Out of all these amazing verses he could have chosen from to quote about the coming king Jesus, he quotes only one of these verses. Chapter 31, verse 15. I'll read you Matthew's, Matthew's quote. So you know this story. When Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So what's up with this? Why does Matthew quote Jeremiah here after King Herod kills the baby boys of Bethlehem? He sees a connection. Just as the Jewish mothers wailed for their children taken into exile, so now the Bethlehem mothers wept for their slaughtered infants. It's a picture of the deep brokenness of the world. There's probably no more pointed portrait than a mother weeping for her children. No one was made to bear that kind of grief. So Matthew sees this parallel between what's happening in Jeremiah's day and what's happening at Jesus' birth. More than just a parallel, though, he sees fulfillment. He sees Jesus as stepping into the grief of this whole world on his first day. And it's fulfilled in that there's more than grief, there's hope. Remember, Jeremiah goes on to say in verse 16, Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping, keep your eyes from tears, for there's a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own country. You see, Jesus is the embodiment of God's words of hope given to his people in the throes of their grief. He's not just words of hope. He is the presence of hope itself. Several years ago, John Piper wrote a short poetic story called The Innkeeper. And it's an imaginative retelling of, well, what if the innkeeper's son was lost in the Bethlehem Massacre too? And in the story, Jesus comes back to the inn many years later as an adult and meets the man who lost his little boy even though Jesus lived. So the very end of the story goes like this. It's, it's long, so I can't read you the whole story, but I'll, I'll read you the last several stanzas. And it begins with the innkeeper telling Jesus about that frightful day. He says, Before I found the breath to scream, I heard the words, A horrid dream. Kill every child who's two or less. Spare not for aught, nor make excess. Let this one be the oldest here. And if you count your own life dear, let none escape. I had no sword, no weapon in my house, but Lord, I had my hands, and I would save the son of my right hand, so brave. Oh, Rachel was so brave. Her hands were like a thousand iron bands around the boy. She wouldn't let him go, and so her own back met with every thrust and blow. I lost my arm, my wife, my sons, the cost of housing the Messiah here. Why would he simply disappear? And never come to help. They sat in silence. And Jacob wondered at the stranger's tears. And then Jesus speaks. I am the boy that Herod wanted to destroy. You gave my parents room to give me life. And then God let me live and took your wife. Ask me not why the one should live, another die. God's ways are high and you will know in time. But I have come to show you what the Lord prepared The night that you made a place for heaven's light. In two weeks they will crucify my flesh. But mark this, Jacob. In three days I will rise from the dead. And place my foot upon the head of him who has the power of death. And I will raise with life and breath your wife and Ben and Joseph too. And give them, Jacob, back to you. With everything the world can store. And you will reign Forevermore. Why do I read this? Because at Christmas, we remember that Jesus landed here on the earth in the midst of deep sorrow. His life was marked by tears from the beginning. And he doesn't just fix it all right away. But he came into our sorrow so that he might bear our sins. So that one day, when he comes again, he might wipe away every tear from our eyes and return to us All that was lost. He will not leave us in our sin and our sorrow. His Christmas letter ends on a resounding note of hope. So I want to circle back and read the last section of Jeremiah 33 that we read earlier one more time. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And in those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord... David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. The Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne in my covenant with the Levitical priest, my minister's. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant, and the Levitical priest who minister to me. So this part of the letter helps you understand the gift of Christ, who He will be, what he will do. It says that he'll come to us as our true king, as a new David. A righteous branch that will spring up for David. And if you don't understand the imagery, just think about David's kingly line as being cut off when the Babylonians come through and take them into exile. But God is saying that I'm going to cause a branch to grow out of that cut-off tree and that a king will come who will execute justice and righteousness in the land. And this is why in Matthew and Luke's gospels, the really boring part of the story that you always skip over the painstaking and seemingly mundane genealogical line to Jesus, they start their stories with that. These are Matthew's very first words of his gospel, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. He wants to make sure you know this is the true king who will save and secure Jerusalem. God's people, they'll be safe, they'll be secure because of him because the Lord is their righteousness. And they say, that's what we're gonna call the city now. The Lord is our righteousness. I guess that'd be a cool church name. The Lord is our righteousness, Baptist Church. You know, And it's a way of saying that despite our many flaws and sins, we are safe and secure because of the great mercy of our God. The Messiah will also be our true priest and as a priest, he'll stand before God on behalf of the people to offer sacrifice that will forever be valid. No ancient Israelite king could have also been a priest. Some of the kings tried that, and it did not go so well for them. But this Messiah will be a king to rescue his people and a priest to stand on their behalf more permanent and reliable than sunrise and sunset. Jesus will never not be this for us, our king, our righteousness, our advocate. And then there is one last um, curious uh, promise at the very end of Jeremiah. It sneaks in there. He says, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. It's interesting. There's this little tag on about like And I'm going to multiply the offspring of David. I'm going to multiply the priests who stand before me. What is that all about? Well, you see, God's plan to fulfill his promises in Christ is ongoing. And you and I have a part to play in that to follow in the footsteps of our King and to serve as what the Bible calls a kingdom of priests those who would speak to God on behalf of people and who would speak to people on behalf of God, as agents of reconciliation. If you're a Christian, you're part of this kingdom of priests and this amazing heritage to be part of fulfilling God's promise to see God and sinners reconciled. So who is the person that perhaps you prayed for earlier in the service? Someone that you need to speak to God on their behalf. You need to pray for them, especially this time of year. Who is that person that you prayed for that perhaps you need to speak to them on behalf of God and communicate his heart for them? Maybe that's through a personal conversation around Christmas. Maybe it's through a Christmas card or a letter. Maybe you send them a link to this sermon or a better one, for goodness sakes, you know. But who is that person? God's heart is to move towards them in their sorrow And in their sin, will you, will you, move towards them in their sorrow or in their sin, as God has moved toward us? Today we have another chance to ponder and marvel at the heart of God toward us, and that's by taking the Lord's Supper. Uh, If you're a Christian walking in fellowship with Christ, you are welcome to join us in remembering. Uh, the lord's supper and as we take this bread and drink this cup we remember that god he didn't just come to live among us and inhabit a body although that is mind-boggling but that he came to have that body broken for us to have his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins let's pray and then we'll take the lord's supper together Our Father, we give you thanks for this letter. It expresses your heart for us. That in our unworthiness and in our many sins, in our great sorrow and deepest griefs, you did not move away from us, but you stepped toward us as close as you could. You took on flesh, dwelt among us. You gave that flesh up to be broken, your blood to be spilled on our behalf so that we could be forgiven, reconciled with you, and restored all the things that are lost. So we give you thanks For your heart, God, toward us expressed through this, your word. Now as we take the bread and the cup, help us see once again your great love. Through Christ we pray, amen. So if you will, use um, the, the center or the wall aisles to come.